you can now listen to Conning the Con ad-free on Apple subscription and buymeacoffee.com forward slash Conning the Con. But that is not all you will find there. I've got two little words for you. Tonka Trilogy. If you know, you know, right? And if you don't, keep listening to Conning the Con and it will all become clear soon enough. And if you want a sneak peek, head over to at Conning the Con on Instagram and get a look at the lighter side of this, well, very heavy con story. Simply click the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts for ad-free and bonus content. Or if you aren't an Apple user, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash conning the con, where on top of that ad-free and bonus content, you can access exclusive videos. You'll find all the links, as always, in the show notes. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Hi listeners, this is episode 13 and it is the last full episode in the series. But next week, we will be sharing a bonus episode where we take a sneak peek behind the prison bars. And if, like me, the closest you've come to the inside of a prison is an episode of Orange is the New Black, then it really is an eye-opener. And if you're looking for psychological support, don't forget you can head over to drsophiemuir.com for more information. If you've been impacted by stress and trauma or any of the themes in the podcast, then check out thebreatheffect.com where Emma has a wealth of information. And hey, if you just want to create some time for your own mental health and wellness, you must check out the retreats that Emma runs at Camp Glenorchy throughout the year. They're worth it for the food alone. As always, the links are in the show notes and don't forget to head over to our socials at Con in the Con on Insta and Facebook to get involved in the conversations and be the first to know about the next series of Conning the Con. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. This episode, we're going to go a little bit off-piste. We've been so lucky to have the guidance and advice throughout the series from our clinical psychologist, Dr. Sophie Muir. And in today's episode, Emma and I get the opportunity to pick her brains in more depth. We're going to be building a checklist of red flags so that you can protect yourself and your family and friends from becoming the next fraud statistic. It's probably a good time to reiterate as well that Dr. Muir has never met Andrew Tonks and is in no way diagnosing him personally, but rather she's going to be speaking to the traits and behaviours that a person who cons generally displays. 
coming up in this week's episode. So I think I've talked previously around that study where they they had people high in psychopathy read these stories with different characters and their memory for the unhappy and unsuccessful female character or the, the vulnerable female character was perfect. So they call this predatory memory, which is a really scary term. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. about con artists we're looking typically at this underlying set of traits known as psychopathy and these are traits like charm grandiosity lying and manipulation shallow emotions lack of remorse and limited empathy these people are often very impulsive and irresponsible they pursue rewards even if that comes with a high level of risk psychopathy is a personality disorder so that means it's an enduring part of of identity, how someone relates to other people, how they relate to the world, and it's formed in their early development and it persists over time. And yeah, I guess the important point with psychopathy is it's it's a collection of traits. So some of these traits just on their own can be normal and can appear as part of other disorders as well, but it's kind of the frequency of those traits. And I guess it's better to think of people as, as either high in psychopathy or, or low in psychopathy. So that kind of sliding scale. Having heard Emma's full story now, what jumped out to you as warning signs or red flags that people need to be aware of? I think the first thing around red flags is that it's it's certainly far easier to identify them in hindsight. So it's going to be easy to, easier to look back and see these. So I don't want to imply that you could have used these to predict the future at the kind of date one or two stage, um, but maybe just signals to be cautious of or to make further inquiry about. I suppose sort of talking very early on about all these business ventures and being an entrepreneur, that's quite a a tricky one because it's hard to, I guess, fact check because someone's not part of sort of a well-established company. Someone who's an entrepreneur might also be quite impulsive, bold, charming. Maybe they're kind of making spontaneous plans quite quick off the mark can be another red flag. But I think for me, the biggest one that stood out was describing himself as a unicorn because of the lack of long-term relationships and inability to find the uh, like a long-term partner at that age. So I think that relationship history is really going to be a key red flag in dating. If someone hasn't been able to, to maintain or have a long-term relationship at a certain age, that's quite problematic sort of why why aren't they able to attach to someone yeah that's the one probably key one to look out for not being able to form a long-term relationship it's not only a a red flag to psychopathy so what it's speaking to there is someone's attachments so their ability to form close intimate bonds with someone and maintain those over time so there's a lot of different skills that are involved in that so I guess that one's not just if sort of in dating, it's not just a red flag to psychopathy. 
I guess what it should stimulate is a question of if this person hasn't been able to maintain a relationship over time, why will they be able to maintain a relationship now? What's changed? You're really kind of wanting to ask the why questions around that one. And maybe there is some kind of answer that could explain it. Okay. And what would you consider to be a satisfactory answer to that question? You really want to be seeing some reflections on what their contribution is. What What is it about relationships they found hard? And then really importantly is why are they why do they want to change or do they know how to change? Do they have a plan in place? What is their level of motivation to address that? You want to know why is it going to be different this time? The older someone is, the more you'll be questioning that how someone forms attachments is formed so early on in life. And the older someone gets, the more persistent those difficulties have been over time. Without some significant therapy or intervention, it's pretty hard to change how you form relationships with people unless you've done a lot of personal development work. Let's talk about online dating in particular. There isn't that one or two degrees of separation that there was generations ago, or even like my generation, where people would perhaps meet through a friend or a friend or at work. Not like now when you meet a complete stranger on an app. So what are the other things that people should be doing to protect themselves? I think you want to look not only at the relationship history, but someone's living and employment history as well. So you want to see that someone, like if you're looking for a long-term committed relationship, you want to see someone who's displayed an ability to maintain the lifestyle and traits and relationships that you want across time. Have they been able to to have a meaningful relationship? Have they maintained family relationships? Have they got long-term friendships? Are they kind not just to you, but do you see these behaviors and traits being displayed across different contexts to other people? And Have they maintained a job long-term? Have they settled in one place for a long time? So you want to see like kind of signs that someone can have a consistent settled lifestyle if that's what you're looking for. So I guess the red flags would be a trail of kind of frequently changing relationships, employment and living situations. So that's going to signal kind of impulsivity, recklessness, maybe a lack of responsibility. So you're really wanting to look for the lifestyle history. You want to look at how someone respects your boundaries. So if you say like no to various things, do they respect this? Or do you find yourself kind of starting to behave in ways that are out of character to kind of please this person? And then sort of looking for inconsistency. So are there missing pieces in the stories that you've been told? Is there an inconsistency between what they're telling you and then what they actually do? And like we've talked about previously, is there a difference in how you feel when you're with them versus when you walk away from that experience? Are you left confused? And do the people around you have concerns and questions? It's a a really good one as well. And those are just kind of for general, general dating, not necessarily for sort of identifying a con man or a psychopath. That's just things to look out for for across the board. Is there a difference between how males and females maybe date and ask those questions? One of the important things, it's it's sort of a, a related concept, is this idea of attachment style. So people have these different ways that they develop relationships and the level of kind of closeness and intimacy that they're comfortable with. And there are these three main styles of attachment, 
you've got people who have got more avoidant attachment styles and those are people who are quite uncomfortable with closeness and intimacy. They like to maintain their own independent lifestyle and routine. Then you've got on the other end of the spectrum people who are who have more anxious attachment styles and they like to have a high degree of closeness. They're very kind of distressed when their partner's not giving them attention. They'll sort of fear abandonment quite a lot. And then you've kind of got the sort of happy medium, which is someone who's got a secure attachment style. And that's someone who is happy to have closeness and intimacy, but also is comfortable with space as well. In media, we typically think that or it's typically portrayed that males would tend to be more that avoidant attachment style, that aloof kind of not wanting to commit. Whereas women we think of as more that kind of clingy and anxious. That's how they're portrayed. But I think the research finds that there's no gender difference in the the proportion of attachment styles. So most people they find like 50% of the population would be have a secure attachment style. So that kind of comfort with intimacy and closeness as well as space independent and independence and then about sort of 25 percent split in those other two attachment styles I've read a lot around that Sophie and I find it fascinating and it's so interesting because again when you look at that past trauma or experience and relationships that brought you forward to that to get to that point of how you behave and it is about that behavior isn't it and then how you're going to communicate and what your needs are and then I, what I found fascinating was then looking at if you've got your people in a relationship that have the different styles, like define secure and secure. That's that's like a unicorn sometimes to get that connection. But define, you know, some people that can they can work. People can still be in relationships long term and have a secure and, and an avoidant relationships, can't they? And someone that is secure and anxious or anxious and avoidant. But sometimes, if we're unaware of that, if we're very oblivious or don't sort of look into those things and that can actually have a huge impact onto your needs not being met or the communication styles not being right yeah so having awareness of what your attachment style is how to identify a partner's attachment style and knowing how those two are going to interact is really important and the the difficulty is and I don't know if you've read this but (laughs) over time like securely attached people pair off and leave the dating pool and then they stay in their long-term relationships for a long time and then the avoidant people just get recycled so even though there might be 25% of the general population who fall in that avoidant category the proportion of them in the dating pool is going to be a lot higher because they they only have these short-term relationships so unfortunately (laughs) in online dating there's going to be a lot of people who fall more in that avoidant category. That's a fascinating part when you look at dating and online dating itself is such a surreal experience from dating in person where you may get picked up or meet somebody through work or like normal. That's actually where dating should occur is that you should meet someone within like a two kilometer radius of where you live. That's what is normal and old fashioned style. But now our two kilometer radius is because we set that (laughs) and then we swiped that and and then we don't even know that person except for that physical aspect. So we, we have no idea except for looking at them. And what can you pick up early on? I, I think it's so hard at that really initial stage to, to know because, like you say, people do want to put their best foot forward in a profile. So sometimes talking yourself up or showboating a little bit might be normal. But I guess, again, like it comes down to – the frequency of those red flags, like 
is there a lot of grandiosity and showboating and name dropping? Do they do that empathy signaling, telling you sort of what a good person they are? Is there lots of superficial language? Is there a lot of evidence of impulsivity and spontaneous behaviours? Are they quite reckless and risky? Um, Yeah, but it's, it's pretty hard to tell that probably from a profile. Yeah, but I guess in the in the way that they message you could maybe give some indications. Like if you're in that early stage, if it feels like they're quite sending sort of mixed signals, they don't always reply to your messages or they reply inconsistently, that can be more of that signal of avoidant attachment style. Uh, and I can only look at it from my female lens and you're watching someone's, how they message you, how often they communicate, do they check in with you? and you're always being like, oh, does he care? Oh, what's happening? You know, what what's that person's? How are they showing up? How are they showing up? And what you're really saying is you need to look and analyze how they're showing up to make sure that that behavior is something that is conducive to what, what you're both looking for and what is a, a normal-ish behavior with dating. Yeah, and I guess everyone has different emotional needs. The level of rons- responsivity that you're looking for in a relationship can they display that? I guess it's having quite a, a reflection for yourself around what are the actual traits and behaviours and patterns that you want from a partner and within a relationship and are they already displaying these things or, or not? People's intentions are all very different and trying to get that out of people. Are they are they here for just a quick or are they, uh, are they here for something long-term? What are they wanting? It's, it's such a... A mind game dating. Especially when we think about the fact that someone who's high in psychopathy will literally identify those things that you're looking for and then reflect them back to you in that mask. So I think that's when you really want to ground what they're saying in their history. Like, have they actually shown that they can display and maintain those behaviors? Yeah. I think from my learning, that listening and tuning in when, like you've said, when you don't feel like it's right when you're away from them and actually going, i got to trust that because sometimes we don't have that evidence in front of us or, and I didn't and I searched for it. Like you said, I looked at the I looked at the business background. I looked at the social things. I asked a lot of those questions going through, but it's that psychological mask that kept being put up. Do you think the fact that, even having to go out and do that research itself is a like a warning sign because to to feel confused and mistrusting enough that you felt you had to go out and do that digging. I felt, had a feeling of like something wasn't right and that gut, but I'm also really good at overriding that reaction personally. And I know that's been something I've had to work on is to tune in and to listen to that so that I can make sure that that's coming coming forward. Otherwise, I will – and at that moment, that time, life was so full and busy that I maybe didn't create enough time and space in my day when you know, looking after children, running these businesses and traveling that I didn't kind of go, okay, where do I really feel comfortable with this situation and what is coming up? Because it, it almost like I keep getting bombarded with behaviours and things that were then would just allow it to be okay. And then a week could go past and I was like, oh, oh I haven't really checked into that. Oh, okay, this is just normal. Always showing up in a different way. 
in a way that was something that was on my tick list. But I remember writing, like, because I do every so often I'll journal and write things down. I've literally burned that journal since then because I had so many moments. I was like, ah, screw that. I don't want to read that again. But writing it, I looked back at it a few months ago and I had a reflection looking at if his behaviors quite early on. And, and I remember writing going, it's so good that I've got someone in my life turning up and showing up. And then the next sentence was, it's really hard to believe that someone would behave that would be this way. It's really amazing that they are like this. You know, maybe it's hard to believe somebody would lie about this sort of stuff, that they would lie so convincingly. Like I, I was trying to rationalize it in my head, even in, in that writing form, but it just didn't, I just couldn't get to the truth of it. And I didn't listen enough. And I should have just gone, you know what? I'm worth more. I just want to walk away. But it's like it just happened. I think it goes back to what Sasha said uh, when we talked to her in earlier episodes. Even though it didn't feel right to you and it really didn't feel right to your family and your friends, it was just so far outside our life experience and our expectation of human behaviour that none of us would or could really honestly believe that somebody would go into your life and invest months and months into lying and deceit. It was just so far from our world experience. Mm. Especially not in little old New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah, that is very true. Not in little old New Zealand. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There's a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. So is there something that makes a person a really good target? What is it that con artists or those people that are high on the psychopathy scale, what are they looking for in their perfect victims? So I think I've talked previously around that study where they they had people high in psychopathy read these stories with different characters and their memory for the unhappy and unsuccessful female character or the, the vulnerable female character was perfect. So they call this predatory memory, which is a really scary term, but they will... I guess, pick up on signs of vulnerability. So whether that's kind of difficult points in life, like being under a lot of stress, whether that's experiencing difficulties with self-worth, or maybe it's sort of a lack of social support, these might be things that could put someone at risk of, of being sort of isolated or manipulated. Is there something that you can project to make yourself a more undesirable target? some of the inverse of those things, those vulnerabilities. So really strong boundaries, probably slowing the pace of things so that psychopathic kind of bonding process is buffered against, sort of not oversharing too much too soon, challenging and questioning things, probably increasing the social support around you so that you're less reliant on that person. So, yeah, you're less sort of vulnerable to to being manipulated. I know that you did a lot of those things, Emma, so I don't know that that's necessarily enough. Should you maybe be meeting the people in the person's life quicker, building a picture of their other important relationships? Do you think that might help? I think if you if you can, but it's also so tricky because at the point at which that that's natural in a normal relationship, it's kind of the point where you're already kind of form it, formed an attachment. So it's so hard. You like you have to take these risks when you're dating. I don't know if you can force things quite that much because this person might also not be 
a con man or a psychopath and that could be quite sort of sabotaging to someone who's not if you're pushing these things very very quickly so it is so hard kind of navigating that uncertainty and sitting with some of it can I ask you about that that role of or that time frame for attachment when you are dating then because that I find fascinating as you know putting boundaries in place before you when you get to know somebody and when things are right to move forward in relationship steps because obviously different parts will actually make um you know the hormones and the connection with that can then isolate fast track those those feelings and for guys and for girls from what I understand it it can be different as well that 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 attachment can happen at different stages along that way with different uh, interactions and components I'd probably be more likely to think about the the interaction of different attachment styles because I guess you could have a man who's anxiously attached who wants to progress things really quickly and a woman who's avoidantly attached who wants to slow it down so I suppose the pace is going to depend on um, the attachment style. So two people who are quite anxiously attached might move quite quickly and be comfortable with that. So it's so hard to put like a time frame on it. It's it's really difficult. I think it's just tuning in a lot with how comfortable you feel. And if you feel like something's too fast for you, communicating that and finding ways to slow that down and hopefully seeing that that person can respect that for you not a very like clean cut satisfying answer or formula okay so here's a big question that I personally really want to know the answer to what is it that you can actually do to protect yourself from a person that's high on the psychopathy scale knowing yourself knowing your weak spots and vulnerabilities knowing what utility you could have to a psychopath what what might they want from you not and actually I should clarify not just a psychopath but sort of anyone in a relationship how could how could someone potentially exploit you or take advantage even if it's not so much exploiting but yeah perhaps you're you're willing to let a lot of bad behaviors slide that sort of thing so kind of knowing yeah knowing your weak spots and doing some work around like increasing your support, developing some skills, maybe assertiveness and boundaries, training if that's if that's needed, it's probably a really helpful one. Yeah, I think just good knowledge of yourself is probably a good starting point. And knowing, I guess, that it is those vulnerabilities, it is vulnerability that can be exploited. So I suppose the more confident and going about daily business you are, I guess the less yeah, the less potential to be to be caught back into that manipulation or threats or things along those lines. The term psychopathy has some quite scary connotations with it. And I have to say that the term predatory memory is probably one of the most horrific and chilling terms I've heard in a while. But what is the real level of danger when you find yourself dating a person with psychopathy? With psychopathy, that it, like that is associated with increased risk of violence because you do have that disregard for other people's rights, their feelings. But it's not to say that all psychopaths are violent and doesn't mean that the type of violence would be necessarily directed at a partner anyway. So just, yeah, because someone's high in psychopathy, it doesn't mean that they'll be violent towards you, but it is, I guess, important to be a little bit wary that there could be an increased risk. But again, like non-psychopathic people as well could be violent too. 
So what is the best advice that you could give someone that thinks they may be being conned? Get as much evidence as you can on background and history. Observe how someone responds to being sensitively challenged, how they respond to you putting boundaries in place, and then get support and talk to those around you and get their perspectives and listen as much as you can to those. All right, I want to know this. Is psychopathy a choice? Are those that are high on the scale of psychopathy, are they evil or is it not something that they have any control over? Psychopathy is not a choice. As a personality disorder, it's a set of traits that are shaped in that early environment. Their brains develop to process information differently. So it's not a choice, I guess, so much how they think and feel. They It is a choice to act on those thoughts and feelings. So exploiting someone, lying and manipulating, those behaviours are a choice. But having that underlying predisposition towards those things is their personality makeup. Yeah. Are they evil? (laughs) I'm surprised that there would be anyone, though, who is truly born evil with no with nothing in their developmental history. I mean, that I find that so hard to believe. Okay, so how about this one? Is there any way that you can talk to a psychopath and tell that they're lying? Do they have any tells, any giveaways when they're telling lies? Or is there any techniques that you can, you know, use, questions that you could specifically ask that might give you a clue? It's different in the work that I've done because I've always had some objective evidence, whether that's a criminal history, judges' sentencing notes, I've always, or like information from a third party. Like I've always had some kind of concrete evidence that I could test out inconsistencies against. So the way that I would interview them would be kind of presenting in this very like naive inquirer role presenting these the conflicting information so I might say oh like that's really interesting because yeah I'm hearing that you're saying this happened but what do you make of the fact that the the judge's sentencing notes say this happened and then kind of seeing how they explain away or respond to that challenging but I don't I don't know about when there's no concrete evidence it's a lot harder to test out lying it's tricky because they will double down on their lies if you don't have concrete things to challenge them with and that's obviously their skill is that they're not deterred by anxieties or worries of being caught out they won't show any sign of being embarrassed or panicked like they'll just double down on the lie with another lie are those high on the psychopathy scale actually capable of experiencing and showing remorse? I don't believe so. I mean, that's the very nature of their personality is not, yeah, not being able to, <laughs> to having limited remorse. So maybe bits of remorse, but not truly, truly deep remorse. They're good at communicating regret, like, Oh, yeah, I wouldn't, I shouldn't have done that or I wish I hadn't done that. But that's kind of like regret in the sense of, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that because of the impact it's had on my life. So that's kind of the difference between regret and remorse. Like remorse is really connecting with the, the impact that something has had on someone else. 
So that sort of apology letter that would somebody would write from the point of view in a court process to show that they're a remorse, would you expect if somebody has psychopathic traits that they are actually remorseful? Oh, I'd be sceptical. Yeah, especially when there's potential for them to gain from writing that statement. Would they spontaneously write that statement if there was no reward for them? I don't, I'd be doubtful. Are con artists or anyone that's high on that psychopathy scale actually able to be rehabilitated? They can be rehabilitated insofar as you can work on the behavioural expression of their personality. So in treatment programs that target people who, who have psychopathy, it's not about changing really how they, how they feel, their emotional structures. It's, it's really just changing how they choose to act in society. So you can, you can limit the expression of lying and manipulation, but you're probably not going to, you're not going to target trying to, trying to encourage them to have true, deep, meaningful relationships with people or feel strong emotional bonds. That's, that's not going to be a realistic target. It's just, yeah, helping them to regulate and control urges and behaviours so that they don't harm other people. What is the most unexpected thing that you've discovered about those high in psychopathy in your career? I was always surprised by how much empathy I was able to feel for someone who is quite ruthless, quite disregarding of other people. A lot, a lot of the time when I've been interviewing people with high in psychopathy, go deep into the kind of early life developmental history and they'll talk about the horrific things that they've been through or experienced. And in talking about that, you might often see that like vulnerable child mode and you break through that egotistical facade. And yeah, I was always surprised, I guess, by how vulnerable that that inner core really is and ability to empathize with that and to feel really like sad for them that ability to empathize and feel that it was so important to be able to do my job I I did genuinely like the people that I worked with and cared about them despite the, the 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 ways that they'd really seriously harmed other people generally speaking about the work I did with corrections not just working with people who were high in psychopathy but just people who were violent or sexual offenders in general it's challenging because sometimes you do sense that there is a genuine motivation to change they have developed a lot of skills and they've got great plans in place for release to kind of have this new pro-social life and they're starting to evidence new behaviors within the environment in prison and and if there is a really good support structure out there in the community I think you can feel hopeful that there can be some real change. But the difficulty is that transition out. And often there isn't the mechanisms in place to support that behaviour change in the community. There's not the support around them of of pro-social families, of health stress, of going back out into the community can overwhelm those skills and resources that they've developed. And that was really hard, a really hard part of the job is the lack of community support available to to help people actually be properly rehabilitated. You really need 
a whole environment outside of prison that is set up to support behaviour change for that behaviour change to, to be maintained over time. And there's just not the resources out there for it. And even in prison, the resources are dwindling. The psychology team that I worked for was getting smaller and smaller. And it's it's really scary when you see that the wait list of people who need a psychologist is like some people are just never going to be seen and they're going to serve their whole sentence without any any rehabilitation. It's really scary and upsetting. I have so valued having these conversations with Dr. Sophie over the last few weeks and months as we've recorded this. And the insights that she's given me have helped me understand, I guess, where I went wrong, uh, where my boundaries weren't in place, where the things that I should have listened to, or those red flags, I, um, I'm very aware of them now. And I'm really clear of how much that wasn't in my, my radar. I guess my biggest advice for somebody is if you feel like that deep down in your gut, something doesn't feel right, listen to it. It may not mean that you act on it straight away. It may mean that you gather information or you reach out and you talk to somebody, you you talk to the police if it's something that you're feeling safety is an issue, but you don't sit on it as I did. And you, you trust that you are worth more than lies. Cons and lies come up in many parts of our lives. Hopefully it's nothing as big as this, but my main, main learning is tuning in. And you only do that by pausing. Over that time when I was dealing with Andrew, my life was way too full. But it got too busy that I didn't have time for me. So I didn't take time to pause and listen and to tune and reflect and then bounce it off my people in my world. He did isolate me in, in some ways and I won't again let that happen where that person becomes a more dominant part of my life when actually they should fit into my life, not take over. Well, we managed to cover quite a diverse range of topics with Dr. Muir on her virtual sofa, from red flags to dating attachment styles. And it was really interesting to get a peek behind the prison bars and get a bit of an insight into the realities of rehabilitation. But for now, should you have the misfortune to cross paths with someone on that psychopathy scale, I hope you'll be slightly better equipped to recognise those red flags. So let's do a quick recap of a few of the easier red flags to spot. You want to be keeping an eye out for grandiosity and name dropping, along with impulsivity and the reckless behaviour in day-to-day life. Are they able to hold down a relationship and have they got a good job history? Do they appear to be able to hold down a consistent lifestyle? Do they respect your boundaries or are you changing your behaviour to please them? And one of the best tips, I think, is remember to check in with yourself. When you leave that person's company, do you feel confused, bamboozled by their interaction? If so, maybe something isn't right. If any of these signs ring true, it's probably time to reach out for help and get a fresh set of eyes on the situation, whether it's through friends or police You just need to reach out for help. And most importantly, listen to your gut. The 
mountains your gaze is pool. If you liked our story, please share with family and friends. And like, subscribe and review so others can learn from my lessons. If you or anyone you know has been affected by something similar, please reach out for help. You are not alone. We've included some links in our show notes. Conning the Con was made with the input of Dr. Sophie Muir and the original music is by the talented Aroha Min. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Hello and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. (laughs) You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Hello, my tribe of true crime addicts. It's Sarah from Conning the Con podcast here. And I imagine you and I have quite a bit in common. I am a complete true crime podcast junkie. And having had the opportunity to go to CrimeCon 2021 and meet all my fellow podcasters on Podcast Row, well, I was like a kid in a candy store. Not to mention all of the incredible speakers, exhibitors, authors that were also spilling the tea there all weekend long. So don't miss out on the next CrimeCon. It's in June on the 11th and 12th in London 2022. Trust me, you don't want FOMO. Don't forget to use the code CTHEC at checkout to get your exclusive Conning the Con discount. That's C-the-C. You know, like calling the con. I can't wait to meet you all there. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder 
from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.